Thank God they closed the honky tonks. Now where can she go to play a man who loves her so and act like he don't know? But the time has come to lock the doors and sit safe at home. So thank God they closed the honky tonks. Hello, everybody. You are listening to Nashville Demystified. I am your host, Alex Steed. Nashville Demystified is a show about getting to know the city better. We opened up with the song, Thank God They Closed the Honky Tonks by Mick Mullen. I love Mick, love his music, love what he does a whole lot, and I am glad he's got a new song out, which happens to be, no surprises here coming from Mick, highly topical. I'm glad that's here, and I'm glad it is opening today's show. All right, in this episode, we will be talking with drag performer Marlene Twitty Fargo. This conversation was how my week kicked off, and it was an absolute delight. Nashville Demystified is made possible by Knack Factory, a video and content production firm, and by We Own This Town, a network of podcasts by and for Nashvillians. Oh, and if you haven't already and you're a fan of the show, please rate, subscribe, follow, and or review wherever you listen. It really does help, particularly on Apple Podcasts. You know, even if you have that app and you don't use it, just look up Nashville Demystified, do a little five-star in there, and maybe say a nice thing if you are uh, so inclined. But really, anywhere you can follow, rate, review, etc., it's extremely helpful, and I appreciate it. Oh, and Please follow us on social. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I swear to God, I'm going to start a TikTok with some regularity. (laughs) I promise. I promise it's going to happen. Speaking of Twitter and Instagram, I shared the following that I'm going to share with you now. And everyone who received it or engaged it in one way or another was super lovely and supportive, and I really appreciate it. And so I wanted to share the same with you here just in case you are less very online than I am. I took two months off previous to our last episode. It was, it's fair to say, somewhat involuntarily, or I guess an involuntary sabbatical, (laughs) because I was in a bit of a depressive state. It was partly related to, well, the state of things, but also because that's something that happens from time to time. Sometimes I'm able to get ahead of it, and get the upper hand and other times I am not so lucky and I fall into a bit of a hole. Podcasting is my favorite thing, emphasis on favorite thing, because it combines all of my favorite stuff. It combines research and writing and satiating curiosity and talking with fascinating people and hearing from you and more. But sometimes when the going gets tough, I hit a wall and it is hard to even think about producing a show because that's how shit like this functions. It's like living with shitty little trickster trolls who are going out of their way to trip you up when you least expect it. In the middle of one of these periods, I can typically do, quote, work stuff, no problem. But even that can sometimes feel insurmountable. But stuff that I do because I love it, like stuff like this, like making the show, it is the first to go. And it's all the more depressing as a result. It's a weird cycle I think it's how depression, which operates like a parasite, serves to preserve itself. I'm saying as much because I think it's important to be transparent about stuff like that, 
particularly when we are all struggling. The struggle is always real, but it is especially real right now for many. Those of us with glitchy brains, with glitchy hearts, with glitchy collections of chemicals, we're out here. I feel y'all in your struggle because I'm in it too. I'm here and I'm glad to be back. I appreciate your patience. So let's get back to the demystification game, my friends. That's enough from me for now. I appreciate your time and I appreciate your patience. I really do. I really do. It means a lot. Before we hear from Marlene, we'll hear a word or two from my friend, the musician and writer, Jack Evan Johnson. He's been on the show before talking about Honky Tonk Badonkadonk, the zine he created with Sabelle Elena, the wonderful, wonderful Sabelle Elena, the clothing designer, the visual artist and designer. I mean, she's just fantastic. And they had created the zine called Honky Tonk Badonkadonk, and they came on Nashville Demystified to talk about it. I was truly inspired by it. And we've been a supporter of that zine. And it was such an inspiration for me that I created a one-off zine around the show that we released last year. And we will likely do it again. So I'm grateful to them for what they have put into the world. I asked Jack, whose writing I adore, to let us know what it looks like these days for musicians in Nashville, or, you know, through his eyes. What is it like to be a musician in Nashville right now, in these times, as they say? He delivered upon that task, and then some. You are truly in for a treat. So here's Jack. In early March... I read an interview in Rolling Stone with the independent country artist Caleb Cottle about the coronavirus's potential effect on his 16-week album release tour. If my tour goes away, it's like a farmer losing his crops, Cottle said, shortly after his South by Southwest shows were canceled, noting that his and his manager wife's sole source of income was his music. Also being an independent musician in Nashville, I empathized with Cottle, but only so much. Get a job in a bar like the rest of us, I remember thinking when one of his songs came on the radio. I was driving to my bartending gig, probably jealous that Cottle figured out how to do something I haven't, and assuming that the only reason he was in Rolling Stone in the first place was that, as talented as he may be, he had paid a publicist a lot to get him in there. Well, a week later, my bar was closed. And a week after that, all Cottle's dates were canceled, along with many others, and whether you were a working musician or a musician working, it didn't seem to matter anymore. We were all screwed. And while I've never made much for music, I was also looking forward to a three-week tour starting in Nashville at the end of May. But yeah, that didn't happen. And you know the rest of the story, which basically came down to three things. Everyone asking themselves whether they still release their album in a pandemic, transitioning to underwhelming live-streamed living room shows, And of course, the shock and heartbreak of losing John Prine from COVID-19. That was rough, and we miss him. But despite gigging regularly for years and being irritated when I'm not, I've not played a live show since January 25th. I flirted with the idea of doing a streaming show, but I'm sorry, I just can't work up the excitement to actually do it. Playing music is one of the only times I'm able to detach and get away from my phone, but now you need it for that too? No thanks. Perhaps I've missed an opportunity to rattle a virtual tip jar and make a few bucks like others have. I don't know. It just doesn't seem fun. And aren't we, like Cowboy Jack Clement said, supposed to be in the fun business? But that's not to say I haven't been making music. One of the best things I ever did was make a New Year's resolution to get a home studio this year, and in January I did. 
And without playing shows, without having to go to work, and literally being ordered to stay indoors, I've had plenty of time to learn how to use it. Plus, I was quarantined with my girlfriend Brandy, who I knew was a great singer, but I was surprised to learn she had some dormant drumming abilities. So we did what any pissed off, scared, and self-respecting quarantined Nashville couple would have done. We started a band, man. A quarantine band. We took the name from the words on a sticker a friend had made a while back, calling it Life is Fucking Sketch. Because, well, it is. And we started recording. Covers, originals, punk rock, country, whatever. I recorded and mixed them as best I could and threw them up unmastered on my SoundCloud page. We also made a music video utilizing the tools we had at our disposal. Mainly, a cardboard cutout of Donald Trump, duct tape, cigarettes, a barbecue, and a rubber unicorn mask. I spent two days editing it on iMovie, and I gotta say, people have paid for worse. It felt good to stay creative in such a difficult time when the creative groove of so many was disrupted. And if anything, it just gave me something to do other than fucking Netflix or whatever. Early on in the pandemic, I saw a lot of internet chatter about the pressure to be productive. A narrative began to arise that it's okay not to be productive right now. You may have more free time on your hands, but take the free time to observe, people were saying. Don't be hard on yourself. It's a scary time, etc. Even Nick Cave, a hero whose image hangs on two walls in my house, joined the conversation, echoing what I'd heard from others. I found it interesting hearing Cave tell people to chill out and just observe the world right now because this is the guy who made an album and a feature film immediately after his son died. But do as I say, not as I do, my grandfather used to say. And so it goes. I, however, wasn't ready to let myself off the hook. Writing songs has always been my way of processing things, maybe things I didn't even know I needed to process, and I can't think of a time that needs processing more than right now. You snowflakes, I thought, thinking about this poet who wrote some of the most beautiful stuff I've ever read in a World War II forced labor camp before being shot and dumped in a mass grave where they found his final poems in his pocket. You're telling me it's too hard to make art when times are tough? That's an artist's job. I read the New York Times every day and watched Trump's insane coronavirus briefings and listened to The Clash and got pissed off and I wrote some songs. I was trying to do all the things Joe Strummer prepared us for, like Henry Rollins said, and for me at least, it seemed to be helping me stay sane. And a few people even liked the tunes. Then, George Floyd was killed. And shit that was already real got really real really fast. We went from pandemic to revolution and hyperdrive, and I'm not afraid to admit that I've had trouble adjusting. Like most musicians I know, I support the protests. I support Black Lives Matter. I want to see killer cops locked up. I want to see Donald Trump sent one way to outer space. I want to understand the logic of people who politicize and bitch about wearing a mask in a global pandemic. I want my small conservative Nevada hometown full of supposed patriots not to lose its goddamn mind when a group of local teenage girls want to protest in front of our police station. I want to understand how a family friend can be both a John Prine fan and a COVID denier. I want to understand the mindset of anyone who doesn't think a statue dignifying racism should be taken down. I want to back my empty tour van up to the Tennessee Capitol, rip that goddamn Nathan Bedford Forrest KKK Grand Wizard bullshit bust out of there, take it on tour down the street, and throw it off the James Robinson Parkway Bridge into the fucking river where it belongs. 
That's actually a live stream performance I'd be down with. I want all the things good and righteous and just and equal and mutually respectful and healthy and inclusive and sane for all people, and I want it now. I don't need to preach about that, though, because most of you, I assume, I hope, feel the same way. But the thing is, now, I don't know what to do, for me or for anyone else. Songwriting doesn't seem to work. Journalism doesn't seem to work. Facts don't work. Data doesn't work. That horrific George Floyd video and hundreds of videos of cops beating peaceful protesters don't seem to work. We're at a moral and intellectual and psychological impasse, and no one, not our leaders, not our scientists, not our artists, can do a damn thing to fix anything or make anyone feel better. The only ones who seem to be doing anything that makes me hopeful are teenagers, but most of them can't vote. So what can we do? I'm not talking about marching and donating and reposting and voting and wearing masks and all the things everyone can and should do, but specifically, as musicians, what can we do? Immediately, those who can afford to can donate money from record sales to organizations promoting social justice. This trend has been a silver lining to all the discord and darkness, and I hope to see it continue after things calm down. But beyond that, I don't know. Maybe Nick Cave was right. Maybe we just need to pay attention and know that most of us musicians, with our love and compassion and awareness, are right about all this stuff. And we should also know why we're right. Not for the sake of arguing on Facebook with idiots from high school whose minds will never change anyways. And maybe not even for the sake of our art. The muse will come when the muse will come, you know? But because knowing something is just worth knowing it, like learning a song you'll never play live just because. Because even when maintaining a positive mental attitude is difficult, almost nobody knows how to stick it out, stay on track, and fight the good fight, whatever that fight may be, better than musicians. We already proved that to ourselves by taking a chance on the dream of this crazy pursuit that banishes many of us to working shitty jobs and playing empty bar rooms for decades before we'll ever make money or get our name in Rolling Stone. And now, we have proven this to the world by being the first group to stop working and the last to go back to work. Because we care. We care, and it matters more than we give ourselves credit for. Ah, live music. Touring. I miss it. I can't wait for venues to open back up and to get back on the road. I don't know when that will be, but till then, if anyone wants to hop in my van, I have a very special gig for us at the Capitol. Thank you, Jack. Again, you can check out Jack's album, American Pink, wherever you find albums these days. Also, and this is extremely exciting news, Jack will be relaunching his record label, Devil's Tower Records, and is currently working on a big John Prine tribute album that will benefit a local charity to be announced. The tribute will be a co-release with Groove Family Records, and as you can tell, I'm a fan of pretty much anything Jack takes on, so I'm very much looking forward to that. And remember... You can support your favorites by paying for their music on Bandcamp and elsewhere, paying them directly as often as you can. If you've got a few dollars to spare, check out their websites and check out their social and see if they've got t-shirts and other stuff for sale. A little goes a long way these days, particularly for our friends who are out there making music and trying to make a living doing that. Okay, onward to Marlene. 
So I talked with Marlene, who is also known as Tim White, and we discussed how Tim slash Marlene went from being a young Christian college boy in the late 80s to a drag queen slash leader of a band called the Twat Biscuits in the 21st century. For a conversation with the queen Twat Biscuit, I was heartened by how uplifting and spiritual our exchange was. It was truly a highlight of my week. I'm not kidding. It was just a lovely way to kick off this week. And I think you're going to enjoy this. So uh, buckle up, get ready. You're going to have a great time on this journey with Marlene. I mean, first, let me start with this question. Who is Marlene Twitty Fargo and where did she come from? Well, Marlene started actually about 10 or 15 years ago. Me and two friends of mine had a show called The Dixon Chicks, Mm. and it was Dirty Gospel. So it was Marlene, Darlene, and Carlene Dixon. (laughs) Well, they both kind of retired, and one of them moved to New York State, and the other one didn't want to continue. So I thought it would be fun to kind of flip it and take it less Dirty Gospel, because that gets into some weird areas sometimes, and make it Dirty Country. You don't say. Yeah. (laughs) It was fun. But I think realistically to maybe reach more people and more people to enjoy it, I had to make it a little less offensive to some people. So it's still, um, Marlene came out of that. And then I just thought to take her a little step further and make her a washed up country singer that's, you know, been trying for decades and never quite made it. Mm. And so I came up with the idea, she needs something to kind of connect her to that history of country. So I came up with the last name of Twitty Fargo which obviously is a nod to Conway Twitty and Donna Fargo. And, okay, so so backing up slightly and then we'll move forward again, how did you end up in the city? I actually, I grew up in southern Indiana and I came to Nashville in 1988 (laughs) as a pastor's son to attend Trevecca Nazarene University. (laughs) Wow. Wow. And I just never left after that. What was that university experience like for you? It was Treveco. It was a good school, good education, but it was funded and based in the Nazarene church, which is Mm. uber fundamental and uber conservative. So it was, um, I kind of always knew all this was in here, Mm -hmm. but I never dealt with it until after college. So it was the typical kind of in the closet, sort of insecure you know, young Christian boy that realizes maybe there's some searching in his sexuality he needs to do. So it was just that typical Christian college education. And then I kind of came to terms with it all after college. So did you, you, you must have graduated around like 92 or 93? 93. Yeah. From Trevecca. What was Nashville like in 93? I guess my sort of two questions, what was Nashville like in in 93, just from like a, a general social place and then what was what was it like for an emerging gay kid in their mid-20s emerging gay christian insecure christian boy (laughs) (laughs) Um, nashville itself was like there's still parts of it that look like it did then Mm. but it's just completely blown up when i first came to nashville you didn't really go downtown sure. after dark unless you were a tourist going to like three bars on Broadway. Mm-hmm. But it just wasn't safe downtown. I mean, you went down during the daytime to work and do banking and whatever kind of business. But after dark, not a lot of people went down there. And now it's like the hub of Nashville. 
Right. I did a couple episodes on Lower Broadway and the history of it from 1980 to, to the early 90s. And it's funny because there was this really prophetic statement that came from this preacher who did a lot of work with the homeless community. And he said something along the lines of, you'll let the high class drunks drink here, but you won't let the low class drunks drink here. And and he kind of prophesized what the future of downtown was going to be, which is sort of a haven for the high class drunks rather than the low class drunks. Yeah. (laughs) Back then it was even, like I say, you didn't really go down to Broadway unless you were a tourist. But now Mm. it's like, I mean, it's just tourism is everywhere down there. And you're right, we've kind of, it's kind of ties into that statement. I've seen a lot of Nashville become that gentrified, mm-hmm. where we've lost a lot of the, the flavor that it was when I moved here. Sure. And we've tried to keep that country music flavor, but it's really like kind of glitzy and marketed now. It's not as gritty and real as it used to be. Right, right. I saw you host the Dolly's birthday, I think last year. And I was just in love with the whole show. And I knew a lot of the people up on stage and they're some of the people who are allowed to still be authentic. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, in you know, in whatever pockets we're still allowed to have within authentic country and, and folk and Americana goes, or a lot of those people, uh, friends of yours or people you knew. Hey, everybody, a quick note about what I'm talking about here. This was a event celebration, I guess, at the exit in in January of this year. Marlene hosted it. Kelsey Walden performed. Little Bandit also. Paisley Fields, Justin Hiltner. Lauren Morrow, Aaron Ray, Jasmine Kasett, and many, many others that just the house band alone, which featured Larissa Maestro and Megan McCormick and Ashley Campbell and a bunch of other people was, it was just fantastic. It was a hell of a good time. And the proceeds went to Dolly's Imagination Library. I just wanted to let you know what the hell we were talking about. Okay, back to the interview. There was probably, um, well, the, the girl who put it together, Emily Warner, who does a lot of marketing and work in um, the music industry here. She was my main contact. She was the one who asked me to do it. And honestly, Justin Hiltner, who played the Mm. banjo in that show, he did a song or two. He is in Marlene's band. And outside of him, like, I didn't really know anybody else in that whole show. Like, I had met Alana Royale. But that was one of the fun things about that show, as far as the performers and the audience for... Marlene looking like this, like (laughs) you never know how people are going to react. So I didn't know any of those people on stage or in the audience. And so that first five minutes when you walk out on stage is always kind of like, how's this going to go? But yeah, it's like the blues brothers showing up at like the chick, you know, in front of the chicken wire, you know, it's like, like (laughs) exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But everybody jumped right in. So it, it was a blast. That was a lot of fun. I loved that show because the majority of those performers were people who are still really in love with country music and are really authentic about it. It's not about the label or the touring or, you know, the the recognition. They just, they love music. Sure. Sure. And they're making it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so, so how did, when you decided, okay, we're not necessarily going to do um, um, uh, uh, dirty gospel. offensive, yeah, dirty gospel oh. uh, anymore. <laughs> what developed out of that? How how did you develop this format and evolution? The bar we used to do Dixon Chicks at was Canvas, which is a gay bar down on Church Street. So the owner had asked me, would I want to do a show alone as Marlene? So that's when I kind of revamped it, and I thought, you know, it'd kind of be funny 
what we came up with, me and the band, is the whole premise of Marlene's show is that we take all these old country classics and we rewrite them to where they're filthy dirty. And we do mm. some originals too. But the whole premise is that Marlene, back in the day, wrote all these songs, the dirty versions, with the people who eventually stole it and took it to mainstream <laughs> and kind of cleaned it up. Right. right. So, I mean, you know, in, in the show, Marlene wrote Rose Garden with Lynn Anderson, wrote like Grandpa with Naomi and Winona, mm -hmm. wrote there's two or three Loretta songs we do. And I tell the audience in the show that you're going to hear the original versions of these songs yeah. tonight <laughs> and they're filthy. Yeah. So that's it. I don't know. I guess it came out of the dirty gospel and just sort of germinated from there. But I, there's something about it's never funny to just be gratuitously nasty and just, sure. you know, cuss. But if it's done in the right context and if it's done, everything we do is tongue in cheek. And mm -hmm. so it just it really seems to work. It just really connects with people. It's that childish humor and just a good fun time where people can just really relax and let go. Does, do you know if the joke has ever gotten back to anybody? Do you know if, if any of the performers have, have heard the joke? I do know that one of the guys who comes to the shows a lot works with Winona. Huh. I don't really know in what capacity, but he has, mm -hmm. you know, pretty frequent interaction with her. And so we do a version of Grandpa mm -hmm. and it's... um basically a young gay boy talking to his gay grandfather. The course is basically talking about back in the day, you know, when you would have sex in the alley and, you know, mm -hmm. you had to stay in the closet. And so he recorded it one night at one of the shows and took it to Winona. And it yeah. talks about, you know, like, was the park a place to fuck and make a buck and not get <laughs> hauled away and all this kind of stuff. He said that Winona listened to it and she just, she was not really pleased with it at all. Really? So, uh, he didn't go into detail. <laughs> but I always say in the show, to be honest with you, I'm a big Winona and Naomi fan. And that's yeah. the thing. Everything we do in the show, I do because I love these people. Like, I grew mm -hmm. up on these people. So it's sort of this weird parody homage to to these people but the fact that Winona hates it actually makes me love the song even more sure, of course, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's a very yeah it's a mix it's a mixed feeling and you know I mean the Judds aren't known for being particularly stable so I feel like any you know homage to the off or sort of darker side is wonderful yeah. <laughs> and I got to meet Winona on the red carpet I did um the red carpet for the Americana Awards and Winona and I met, and that was before she heard the song, I think. Sure. But I could tell that she was really kind of worried about talking to me, because I thought she was worried I was going to go for the juggler. Right. And I right. didn't. I tried to be respectful, but I could tell she she never quite really let herself go. Yeah. yeah. And I will also say now, I have a friend who, one of the girls in the band, she does a lot of interviewing for NPR, and she got to interview Tanya Tucker. Mm. And we do a version of Delta Dawn called Delta's Dong, and it's about this <laughs> Memphis drag queen who's famous because she has like a 14-inch penis. Yeah. And she, Julie, who's in the band, told Tanya about it, and she said Tanya loved the idea. Oh, so I'm kind of hoping maybe Tanya will come to a show someday. Just to hear I bet. It. 
she seems cool. I, I interviewed the singer LG from Thelma and the Sleaze and her and she, and she loves she loves Tanya Tucker. And apparently they ended up meeting and hanging out for a while. And just thinking about those two, like with their chaos energy together in one place, I imagine was fabulous. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, and the thing I love about Tanya is, I mean, you know, she's lived some life. She's yeah. been through it. And I think rather than make her defensive or bitter, it's kind of her opened her up to, you know, I mean, just enjoy life. Like, totally. don't take everything so seriously. And I think she's got it in some ways that a lot of people don't. Because like I say, it's, I even talked about Tanya in the show. I, I make jokes about back in the day, me and Tanya were crushing quaaludes and snorting them in the, in the trailer <laughs> out back. And, sure. and it's, it's all done in love, really. But I, I think Tanya, she gets that that humor where some people don't get it. No, I, I think so. And I think it's so interesting what you're doing because both drag and the concept of being in or out of the closet both apply even to sort of like heavily hetero country, right? Where it's like, you know, you think of how many people are out of the closet just with their own personality, not sort of not with their sexuality, but are very comfortable in their personality versus who is just exclusively putting on a show, like a theatrical right. show. And I, I think actually with country, it's the most on the nose comparison to what you're doing, which is, I think, why it fits in so well. Yeah. There historically are people who seem to have never been comfortable with who they are, and so they hide behind, you know, nudie suits and stayed performance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you're right. I think the thing that's been great about Marlene in that country vein is, like you just said, it kind of ties into that whole persona of country and those people who've really learned to accept themselves. And there's enough of like the tongue in cheek Monty Python in Marlene mm -hmm. that a lot of the straight, manly, macho country people can enjoy it too. It's been really cathartic for me to see this because like we probably are ending up being as accepted, sometimes more accepted in the country straight crowd than mm -hmm. we are by the gay crowd. I mean, they yeah. just, they, they really get what we're doing and they love it and they have fun with it. Yeah. I think country in a lot of ways, especially with the showmanship is an inherently queer genre. It has for years struggled with the truth of that, but it is absolutely the case. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And when did you feel like it went from being something that you were trying out or sort of loosely inhabiting to something that you're like, I live in this thing. Like this isn't just a character. Like this is something I sort of comfortably inhabit. Right, right. And th and that's, yes, I agree. But let me start by saying that is exactly what happened with this thing with me is we just started doing it, you know, we just did it for shits and giggles. And then at some point, I realized that it was so therapeutic for me. And I did kind of, Marlene is everything that Tim White never allowed himself to be. And sure. she'll say and do things that he never would. And when we moved from Canvas we were asked to start doing the shows. The first place we did it outside the gay bar was the city winery. Mm. And we had people who, you know, were loosely connected to the industry that would come backstage afterwards and say, this format is something that nobody else is doing. And you need to really kind of look at this and just take it a little more seriously. Like, don't dress it up make it a mess mm -hmm. like it is, but it's something that people are really going to buy into. And we've had, you know, a few people, I don't know. I, I don't know if I should say there's some names cause I don't want to out anybody, but sure. we've had a couple people come to us and say, who are in the music industry, you know, fairly well-known performers who have said, 
I want to get with you. I want to write some dirty stuff. This is so much fun. You know, this is, this is the kind of stuff we love to do that we can't always do on stage. Right. After the city winery, I started realizing this is filling some niche that people need. And it became something that was filling a niche that I needed. So mm. it just sort of snowballed into what it is now. Going back slightly, I mean, b- b- actually quite a bit back, uh, when you were talking about what downtown used to be in the mid-90s, who were you in that time? Who were you in the mid-90s in, in, in Nashville? In the mid-90s, I was a good Christian young man <laughs> who, <laughs> like I say, I knew inside everything. I knew inside that this is, is where I was. Mm-hmm. But I still kept up the the persona of the good Christian. You know, I was trying different churches because I couldn't find one that really fit me. And just probably early, early 2000s is when I just started really realizing like, hey, I just got to come out in many ways. Not mm-hmm. only my sexuality, but the fact that I'm not this uptight little Christian person who... It, Nashville has been the place I have grown the most in my life. Like who I was in 1988 when I moved here up to the 90s and then into the 2000s where I am now has been the most cathartic journey for me. So in the mid-90s, I was a good Christian boy. Yeah. How do you get to a point where, you know, you're a good Christian boy and then you're doing dirty gospel? Was there a step in between or did you just launch into dirty gospel? I think it was because after I came out, the gay community knows how to celebrate sex in, in a fun way mm-hmm. and in a humorous way. The gay community doesn't take it as seriously as I think the, the straight community does sometimes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so I think it was that process of me kind of dealing with my sexuality and dealing with how I felt about things spiritually and God. Mm-hmm. And the place I've come to is God is this being who probably laughs at Marlene as much or more than some of the people in the crowd. I think we put God into such a box in organized religion that God is really about loving your life and appreciating and celebrating life. I mean, we get, you know, 70, 80 years here Mm -hmm. and just being uptight and good all the time is, is I don't think what God intended. And I think in the right situation, he intended for us to be body and kind of tongue in cheek and, potty potty humor i just think god has become this beautiful concept for me of totally embrace your life and live Mm. it whatever that is for each person like don't shy away from it because that's what god really wants so this is in a weird way what god wants for me this has helped me become a better person by allowing myself to do this and i mean i i feel like if being uptight generally, and I've struggled with that in different periods of my life, and I feel like unfortunately on the other side of it, but being uptight is the thing that'll kill you. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Even if you're not dead, it'll just kill you inside. <laughs> every time, every time. That anxiety and that stress, it will numb you to the point that you're literally just sort of, you're getting out of bed in the morning, getting through the day, and you're going to bed at night. Yeah, I totally exactly. agree how are you faring at, at this weird and terrible moment of displacement for all of us right now? It's been fortunate for me in that, obviously, Marlene is not how I make my living. <laughs> She's not quite there yet. <laughs> so I still have 
been able to have my day job. I work in healthcare, so my work has never stopped. Sure. But um, for me, it's been nice to kind of sit back because this last two or three months, I've been able to really start thinking, Marlene's fun, the show's fun, we have a good time, but this has given me time to sort of germinate ideas to maybe after this is all over, really start taking it to the next level. Great. And I feel for those people who, who make a living at this, a lot of mm-hmm. people that I know who I love, because it really has hit them hard. But for me, it's been kind of a growing time. And then I've got to really kind of think about how to take this further and how to make it even better. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it really is, even for people who are in, in that situation that you're in right now, my, my wife is one of these people and there's a lot of my friends who are in that situation. I feel like it's a forced chrysalis time. And you yeah, know, on, exactly. the other, on the other side, we're going to see some really interesting shit. <laughs> yep, I totally agree. And that's, you know, apart from performing or just life in general, this whole past three months, this is something, especially humans, but especially Americans, we don't do. We don't stop and just, you know, sit and think all day. Like we have to keep going. And so I think this forcing everybody to really stop for a couple months is like you said, it's like a chrysalis mom- a moment. It's you have to kind of think about who you are, where you've been, where you're going. And I think you're right, especially for artists. We're going to see some really interesting stuff on the other side of this. Yeah, for sure. Well, Marlene, I want to thank you so much. I didn't realize uh, spirituality would come into this as much as it has, but I absolutely appreciate your take on it. It's it's really fabulous. Let me tell you quickly, It's this has been kind of serious and I've enjoyed it, but sure. the show is nothing but just body and fun. <laughs> but the amazing thing about the show is it has become, to a certain degree for me, a spiritual encounter. Just being on stage and knowing that you're connecting with these people and for like an hour, these people can forget whatever happened today and just totally laugh at at toilet humor. Mm -hmm. It connects us all in a way that for me, many times I get kind of emotional on stage because it becomes a spiritual experience. So ironically, this body dirty country music show becomes a place where people kind of connect and commune together. And it's just, Mm -hmm. it's beautiful. Absolutely. Now, if you come see the show, it's nothing but raunch and fun. <laughs> you yeah, get that I, spiritual feeling, but we don't get spiritual in the show <laughs> at all. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. You're you're li- literally, I heard about you before coming to Nashville. And then I heard when I first came, every time I came, people would immediately, they'd sense my interests for five minutes and then immediately tell me that I should go and see your show. And I, I'm, I'm glad that I've had the uh, the fortune of doing so. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you. And I look forward to seeing you in person after this is all over. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're all going to have a hell of a time. (laughs) Awesome. Take care. Have a wonderful night. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. You too. Have a good evening. Okay, everybody, that's the show. You've been listening to National Demystified. I am your host, Alex Teed. Thank you so much, Marlene. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you so much, Mick, for doing all that you've done to make this episode wonderful. National Demystified is put together by our sound engineer and all-around good guy, Cameron Davidson. New dad, Cameron Davidson. Just the best. I appreciate everything you do, Cameron. Thank you. National Demystified is made possible by Knack Factory, and we own this town. Again, thank you for listening. I'm looking forward to us all uh, getting together again soon. All right. Take care. Thank
closed honky tonks, real side beat. 